Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity, see how tall they are, and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week is going to feel long, really, really long. So I thought we'd rerun the episode about the longest joke we've ever had on the show, our, our March 2019 interview with Gary Goleman. The joke is is so good, and, and Gary is, is so engrossing talking about it, and importantly, it's 24 minutes long. Stretching out over six tracks off his 2016 album, It's About Time, it's, it is, in my opinion, uh, Gary's magnum opus, as I am a person who calls people's jokes magnum opuses, um, opusi, and what it, what it is is a testament to Gary as like a great joke writing craftsman. There are just sort of so many different types of jokes in it. There's storytelling, there, there's wordplay, and put it all together, it, it really conveys why Gary is a joke writer's joke writer. He, he really puts a lot of care and thought into each word, each syllable, each pause, and I was really excited to get to talk to him about it and really dive into it. Um, I had many sheets of paper highlighted and underlined, and I could tell that he appreciated someone finally taking him as seriously as he should have been taken. When we spoke, Gary had, you know, fairly recently just been getting back into stand-up a- after some time struggling with mental illness. The, the, the material that he was working on that we do touch on in the interview would go on to become his acclaimed 2019 HBO special, The Great Depression. If you haven't seen that special, I'm sure you have if you listen to the show, but for some reason, if you haven't, it, it really is the best of what stand-up can do. It, it it combines just like great joke writing and craftsmanship to allow him to talk about a darker part of his life. So enjoy all of this joke. I know you're going to buckle up, strap in, put both headphones in, do whatever you do when you pay attention to a joke or, you know, just like keep on going for your walk. Anyway, here is Gary Goldman. Now, now I'd like to tell you a story of a meltdown I had at Trader Joe's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. First of all, let me preface this. Mm, mm. <laughs> let me preface this by saying that I love Trader Joe's. I love them. They are so nice. They all do each other's jobs. There's no hierarchy. This is, ugh. I, 
It sounds communist. And maybe it is communist, but at least it's not Soviet wool coat uh, communism. I, w- I would characterize the communism at Trader Joe's as Narnian. <laughs> Narnian during the reign of Aslan the Lion. Well, obviously, it's not going to be the White Witch. God forbid. During the reign of Aslan the Lion. Aslan the Lion, let me add, uh, the most obvious Christ figure in the history of literature. I called it in fifth grade, and I'm a Jew. But we got to the part in Lion Witch Wardrobe where Aslan dies and the kids were weeping. They were so distraught. And I remember I was so cool, I said, hold your tears. This goes where I think it's going. He'll be back on Sunday. And show enough. They're so nice at Trader Joe's. They always compliment me on one of the items I chose. I feel so good. Like, have you tried the olive oil popcorn? And I always make the same adorable quip. I always say, tried it. I can barely keep it in stock. (laughs) Let me tell you why that's funny. I'm not the purchasing agent for a grocery store. I'm just a guy. They compliment me on my item. They know what to do because I bring my own bag and they know what to do with it. A lot of grocery stores, they're dumbfounded by that. I've had them put my reusable bag into a plastic bag. Oh, did you think that your store sells PBS tote bags? Is that what you thought? No, 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 that's only available with a $100 contribution. Yeah, I contribute along with the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The Bill, and to a lesser extent, Melinda Gates Foundation. The Chubb Group. (laughs) What age do you get to when you don't laugh when you say Chubb Group? And viewers like me. (laughs) I bring my own bag that tells you everything you need to know about me. Thoughtful, environmentally conscious, good lover. Patient, attentive lover. That's what that says. Bring my own bag. And a lot of times, now this is, you're going to be like, this is insignificant, but I'm going to show you something that they do at Trader Joe's that makes me so happy. I pay with a credit card, and I have to go to sign the receipt. And a lot of times, I have my tote bag over my shoulder, so I can't get leverage with two, I don't have two hands available. I can't get leverage. And at Trader Joe's, they subtly very subtly put their hand on the top of the receipt and give me that leverage so I can make that quality signature. And it's the most intimate moment of my day. When that person looks at me and without saying a word says, you're not alone. And I can feel my brain awash in serotonin and dopamine. I can. And then... Then I read this study. I didn't, I didn't read a study. It was a summary of a study. All right, I read the summary of a study that psychiatrists did where these little interactions during the day, the hello to a neighbor, the hey, the nice weather we're having, or whatever, any of those little interactions during the day raise your level of serotonin and dopamine in your brain. Serotonin and dopamine, that's the same thing you get from your 
from your Prozac, your Zyprexa, your Effexor, your Selexa, whatever you use to drive over the bridge without getting out of the car. <laughs> I won't judge you, I'm on everything but roller skates right now. <laughs> They're so nice at Trader Joe's. They always ask me if I found everything I was looking for today. And I don't even think it's limited to their inventory. I honestly believe that if I told the cashier, well, today, today I couldn't find a friend. I feel like she would stop everything and say to her boss, Bev, Bev, I'm gonna take my 15 minute early if that's okay. This young man needs an ear and I have two of them. I, I don't write for women well, I apologize. That's the knock on me. But they, they say, did you find everything you were looking for at other grocery stores? But they don't mean it. They don't mean it, they're just saying it just in case you're the undercover shopper. They don't mean it, they just want you to get out of the store. Just say yes, you find everything you're looking, just say yes and get out of the store. What am I gonna hold up the line because you couldn't find your 100 calorie Oreo cookies? 100 calorie Oreo cookies are such a scam. They're such a scam. They're neither Oreos nor cookies. They're chocolate flavored oyster crackers. Which is fine if the soup of the day is marshmallow bisque. But it's lentil. It's always lentil. At least where I sup. The Trader Joe's, oh, they ask if you found everything you were looking for today. I've followed up with them. I said, well, last week I was here and I got some fair trade, conflict-free pumpkin seeds. And this week all I could find is the conventional. The unfair trade blood pumpkin seeds. <laughs> Depicted in the ever so traumatizing documentary, Blood Pumpkin Seeds. I said, are you out of them? She said, did you check all 60 of our snack aisles? I did. I even checked all 35 of your trail mix varieties. Nine of which contain M&Ms. How are you getting away with that? Please, point me to this trail where I can pick candy-covered chocolate with Times New Roman M's typed on the side. I said I couldn't find them. That's when she rang a bell and the stock boy, who's also the chief financial officer, he came running up the aisle with my pumpkin seeds and the bottle of spice cider that he said might be a fine compliment. And it was, it was. It was the Pinot Noir to my pumpkin seeds Chilean sea bass, I shit you not. Might be, why you humble son of a bitch. So now of course that begs the question, how did you have a meltdown in this Shangri-La? How did you lose your mind in this Xanadu? The people who shop there. Godless savages. They are pushy, they are aggressive, they're hostile, they cheat. They say, how do you cheat at a grocery store? Oh, it's easy. You put your cart in the checkout line with a few items in it, and then you abandon it and go get more things and bring it back and shuttle back and forth. And don't worry, the schmuck behind you will push the cart forward when the line moves. And I was that schmuck. I was that schmuck, that putz, that yutz, that schmendrick, that schlemiel, that schmageggy, that schlep, that schlub, that schmo, that schnook. Eskimos have a hundred different words for snow. 
Jews, we have a hundred different words for loser. And then recently, I, my, my tune changed. I said, you know what, I'm sick of pushing their cart forward. They're taking advantage. They never come back and say thank you. They never apologize. So I have a new policy. When the line goes ahead, I go ahead of their cart. And strictly because I'm spiteful and vengeful, I steal an item from their cart. <laughs> and I am diabolical. I always pick an item that will cause domestic strife were it to go missing. And then, I, and then I just fantasize about said strife. I've got this whole fantasy in my head about the husband coming home and he just wants to put on his salmon-colored slacks, pop his collar, and watch The O'Reilly Factor. <laughs> but he wants a snack. And his wife was at Trader Joe's today. So he goes into the kitchen and he starts looking through all the brown paper bags on the island in the kitchen. One, brown paper bags. They don't recycle these. <laughs> Two, they have an island in their kitchen. Do you know how wealthy you have to be to have an island in your kitchen in New York City? A landmass in your kitchen? Do you know how wealthy you have to be to have a kitchen in your kitchen in New York City? And they have an island? I hate them already. And he's going through and he's becoming increasingly angry. Oh, she got the cookie butter. Of course she got the cookie butter. Trader Jose's salsa. Of course. Where the fuck is my Kashi Goli Crunch carry? I've got the crunch. I have the crunch. And it's marinating in almond milk as he loses his mind. The other thing I like to do, and this is strictly, uh, well, this is community service. I invite any elderly woman in the vicinity to cut ahead with me. You say, how do you get elderly women to join you in your pursuits? I appeal to their vanity. I say, come on, girls. When elderly women are referred to as girls for the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis, they light up. One of the women was so overcome with lust, she, she was fanning herself with her hand, which any third grade teacher will tell you is futile. Fanning herself with her hand, she said, young man, young man, if you had any idea how old I am. And I said, Phyllis. Phyllis, I have some idea how old you are. The fact that the Department of Commerce discontinued the first name Phyllis in 1933. I can ballpark at you, Randy Minx. The only thing with the elderly, they're, you know, they're the greatest generation people, so they're rule followers. They, they didn't want to make any waves. They're like, what's going to happen when the woman comes back to the cart? Well, Rose, Blanche... Dorothy, there'll be a showdown, and I'll handle it. I know what we're dealing with here. I've profiled this criminal. Based on the time of day and the neighborhood, I know what she's going to look like. 3 p.m., Upper West Side, wealthy. Also, she's shopping healthy, which means she exercises, she works out. She's going to have that body because she goes to Pilates, yoga, soul cycle. She's going to have that combination body with a head, mm, doesn't really match. Because there's no yoga pose for the face. So you have these minotaurs walking around the city 
with the lower body of a yoga instructor and the head of a Komodo dragon. And that's what came back to the cart. That's what came back to the cart. Armful of frozen foods. Now, why is that significant? Well, this particular TJ is where I trade. It means she went downstairs to frozen foods. It's a 10-minute round trip. The audacity, nay, the temerity. To go downstairs to frozen foods, comes back with an armful and said, and I quote, yeah, no. She said, yeah, but then she said, no. I hate that expression so much. It is the ultimate in passive aggressive. To get your hopes up with the yeah, only to dash them upon the rocks of no. Yeah, no. I was ahead of you. Ugh. I hate yeah, no. It's, it's, it's my third most hated expression. Number three is yeah, no. Number two, at the end of the day. Oh, I hate at the end of the day. They think they're so smart starting their sentences with at the end of the day and they really wind it up. At the end of the day, Look, they say so much and say nothing. They just go on and on with these little, look, listen, not for nothing. I'm just thinking out loud here. Here's the thing. The thing is, when it comes right down to it, when all is said and done, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, it is what it is. Just saying. At the end of the day, and just saying, oh, those people, oh, I, I, hate, I hate them. I hate them. It's wrong to hate somebody for their expressions, but I do it. At the end of the day, they think they're so, and then they drop some empty cliche on you. At the end of the day, it's all about family and community. When? When at the end of the day? What is it at breakfast? Hookers and cocaine? Is that what it's about? Just let me plan my day. And just saying, just saying. They always were just saying something irritating, offensive, or ignorant. Nobody said anything brave or courageous and then backtracked it, just saying. <laughs> give me liberty or give me death. I'm just saying. <laughs> I know those are two stock alternatives, but <laughs> I just want you to know I mean it. Ero, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Air, I'm just saying. If you have the time, I don't want to inconvenience you. No. It's always some Facebook status update. Offensive. I never had any trouble with bears in my backyard before we elected a black president. Just saying. I'm not saying there is a correlation. I'm not saying there ain't a correlation. It could be specious. But this, this woman said, yeah, no. I was ahead of you. And so I said, no, yeah. I flipped it. I said, no, yeah, you were ahead of me. Then you went shopping. You can't go downstairs to Frozen Foods, come back with an armful and take your spot in line. The best I can offer you at this point, ma'am, is back cuts. I feel that's incredibly generous, considering the Golden Girls have minutes to live. And I wish I could say it ended there, but it didn't. 
she got violent. After I said that she couldn't go ahead of me, she just rammed ahead. She rammed me in the basket with her cart, sprained my wrist, crushed my lentil chips, rendering them useless for dipping, not topping. <laughs> and I, I just stood there. I don't know what I was looking for. A bouncer? I don't know. I don't know what I was looking for. It's Crater Joe's. And I'm like, will somebody, will somebody say something? And I was like, oh. Now I gotta say something. I gotta take a stand. At Trader Joe's, I gotta take a stand. I don't wanna take a stand. The most stand I'll take is I'll insist on a booth at Cheesecake Factory. It's more comfortable. <laughs> but I don't like to take a stand. But I said, no, there's no way I have to. I have to say something. This aggression will not stand. So I took a stand. I, I've, I've seen stands taken. You need a gesture and a slogan. And all I could come up with was... Uh, I used the black power symbol, which is completely inappropriate for the 1968 Mexican Olympics. I raised my fist, but the slogan was even worse. I said, this isn't fair. <laughs> but like higher pitched and whinier than that, it came out so bad. My voice was shaking. This isn't fair. And in my, oh, in my fantasy, it started a groundswell of support and the people rallied behind me and they said, you know, I'm glad you said something. Nothing. There was silence. There was no chanting of USA. There was silence. Except for one guy behind me who said, oh, here we go. <laughs> then I looked to the perimeter for support and all there was was an eerie glow as the people raised their phones and switched from PIC to VID. Oh no. I have seriously miscalculated the political climate of this Trader Joe's. They are not ripe for revolution. And I would have backed down, I was just, just saying, you know, I was gonna back down. But then the woman who cut me, <laughs> she couldn't leave well enough alone. She woke this sleeping giant. I said, this isn't fair. She turned around and she said, you'll get over it. <laughs> you don't know me at all. You have just ensured I will never, I will never get over it. I am sensitive and I hold a grudge. I have axes I've been grinding since second grade. There is no way I will get over this. I will be bringing it on my, on my deathbed, I assure you, on my deathbed. My last words will be, this isn't fair. <laughs> and people will analyze, it'll become my rosebud. People will analyze, what could he have meant by this isn't fair? Life is too short. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Oh no, no, a woman cut him in line 56 years ago at Trader Joe's. The freak never got over it, I swear to you. Even though she said that he would. So I knew I wouldn't get over it, so I, uh, so I, I uh, had a, uh, a counter attack. I, I picked up my basket, but I didn't, I didn't make the same mistake twice. I didn't want to get inside of me, so I picked up my basket, I jabbed fake left, she bit. So I crossed over to get the baseline on her. But she was spry. She spun and rammed me once again in the basket with her cart. But I was so drunk with righteous anger that I screamed, That's assault! That is assault! Ring the bell! I've been struck! <laughs> I've been struck. 
That's when she realized she had been out crazied. Because you don't think about it. I've never said I've been struck. Nobody has said I've been struck since the 19th century. I've been struck when out with, Good day, sir! I said good day, sir! Good day, sir, of course, the go fuck yourself of 1876. What a splendid time in American history. We'd just say a greeting in an angry tone and everybody knew you meant business. So she started her retreat. She said, fine, you know what, fine. Fine, go ahead of me, if it's that important to you. It is. If what's that important to me? Justice? Yeah, justice is that important to me. It's a cornerstone of my philosophy. But she says, uh, just know, just know you're allowed to leave your cart in New York City. That's how it works. Yeah, no. That's, that is not how it works at all. I know how it works. I've been operating grocery carts since I was 11 years old. My mom felt I was mature enough not to ruin old ladies' Achilles heels with the cart. I know how it works. Let me show you how it works. All right. Here's your cart. Here's your foot. Anything you can reach without lifting your foot off the ground, you can put into your cart. You cannot lift your leg, get in an escalator, go downstairs to frozen foods, come back with an armful of skinny cows and Amy's organics because you will have lifted your pivot foot. And that, my dear, is a travel. And I'm calling it. Had she just asked, I assure you, had she just asked, if she had just said, do you mind if I go downstairs for frozen foods? I forgot skinny cows. And I'm craving something sweet. I only have three points left today. I'd say, I know, skinny cows. Two points, ow. I love skinny cows. I can barely keep them in stock. I would say, go, go, get your skinny cows, Godspeed. Because that's the truth about Americans, and even New Yorkers. We love, love doing favors for strangers. Strangers, not our family, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> but a stranger, I will bend over backwards to show them I am not the person my family said I am. We are here with the, the man behind all of that joke, Gary Goldman. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I've been... Well, I would have been furious if you didn't have me on. So. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. So I want to start uh, from the beginning, the very, very beginning of this joke. Uh, so you go to Trader Joe's. 72nd and Broadway. <laughs> After a therapy session. My therapist is at 72nd and Broadway, oh, too. This, this guy that many comedians see, this man named Alan Lefkowitz. That's great. He started with Richard Lewis. And over the years, he's seen so many comedians. In the most boring way possible, what happens? Okay. With this woman. I was, I was there and there were two or three elderly women ahead of me. And then there was a, a woman ahead of them who, who left her, her cart and was gone for a while. 
and to the point where the line moved forward and we we went ahead of her and then she came back and and she insisted on getting ahead of us again and one of the elderly women and this is the 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 great line that i take for myself and the, <laughs> one of the elderly women said to her you went shopping <laughs> and and she she resisted and she was she was so hostile and they just gave in and i was so incensed and had had just been empowered by a good therapy session mm -hmm. and so so yeah decided to to yell this isn't fair <laughs> and then the woman turned back to me and she said you'll get over it and 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 that was the yeah and and then we kind of tussled a little bit and, mm. and I, where you try to get in front yeah of her. i try to get in front of her <laughs> and she she slammed her card into my basket and and it got uh ugly and then in in reality she said fine if it's that important to you but it it might not have been what really happened i, <laughs> I can't remember because i've told the story so many times in that way <laughs> That you could picture her saying that, but you yeah. have no idea if she said that. Somebody once said to me in a similar situation, "You'll um, if it's that important to you, yeah, go ahead if it's that important to you." This woman actually did say, "You'll get over yeah, it." Yeah. But somebody somewhere in my life, either that woman or somebody else, said, "If it's that important to you," <laughs> and 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 I said, "It is. It is that <laughs> important to me." It happens. Are you immediately like? You know, I, I talked about how there's comedians have a sort of a spidey sense of like, oh, there's material in yeah. there. Did you feel like, oh, there's something? Yes, absolutely. And <laughs> and to the point where I went on stage that night at the at the comedy cellar and told the story. And the only thing I really had was you went shopping. Yeah. <laughs> which was the line that the elderly woman said. And it and it bombed and the entire story just no interest from the audience. <laughs> But I knew something was there, so I, I sat at the, the comics table upstairs at the olive tree, and I said to I remember it was Keith Robinson, I told him the story, and he laughed, and I said, do you think that's, that's funny? Is that worth sticking with? And he, and he said, yes, and I never do that. I never workshop a, yeah. a, 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 a... I never ask permission of other comedians whether this is, this is funny. I, if I have done that, it's been a long time, and I don't yeah. remember the last time I had done that. Is it because there's a different type of joke that you want yes. to see? Exactly. That's a great point, Jesse. I, <laughs> I had not been a storyteller up to that point, a true storyteller. And then it's, it became not, not all that true. Yeah, but over at the, some point your goal times, to... Yeah, so, but it, it's emotionally true, which I think is important. So is the... We'll get through sort of all of it, but I, I was wondering, I guess, at that point, are you like, what Trader Joe's material is already out there? Like, at what point are you making sure... There's not things that are sort of adjacent to this. I know because I know that you do that. The thing was that normally people in or comedians rail against these things. They hate this. They hate that. Yeah. And I've found it's 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 easier to be different if you take the other side of that argument. Yeah. I don't know why they make it so easy for me, but they do. They just hate everything and yeah. are and are so cynical. I love Trader Joe's, <laughs> yeah. and it's much easier for me to write something original from that from that vantage point and perspective than it is to to attack something. It's it it, it feels better too. As we mentioned, the joke was not written in order. No joke gets written like, okay, right. it's time yeah, to write yeah, a joke. Yeah. Let me start with the first word, and then yeah, twenty one yeah, yeah. minutes later, right. you yeah. have no idea. Right, exactly. Um, and 
what's useful is by 2012, you have the story half of the joke because you do it on John Oliver. Yes. So the so you basically have a little bit of I like Trader Joe's as a setup to then yes. tell the story, and then by 2014 on Pete Holmes show, you only do the part about how you like Trader Joe's. Right. And that's 12 minutes already of material. And then yeah. somewhere along the way, nine more minutes come together yeah. by the time you record an album in 2015 um, to set the stage. Okay. So you have the seeds of this, uh, pun intended, in the John Oliver <laughs> joke, which is in John Oliver, you say, uh, they're so nice. Everybody does everybody else's job from the bottom to the top. It's no doubt communist. The yes. end. Then by Pete Holmes, it's uh, it's an oasis of sweetness in a desert of cruel grocery stores. <laughs> They're so nice to each other. I don't uh, remember saying that. <laughs> it's, it's communist, clearly, but it's not gray wool coat Soviet communism. I would categorize, categorize the communism as Trader Joe's as Narnian, which is pretty close to what you say in the special. So I think that, that sort of begs the question of how you're getting to, uh, you know, to, from communism to Narnian to... Let's talk about Narnia. Just sort of the thought process of getting to into Narnia. For years, I had had a theory on on the Chronicles of Narnia, and a separate joke that the, a, a lot of the issues with with jokes is, and it's it's clear in the introduction to this. I'm just going to tell a story. It's how to get into it. Yeah. How do you talk about something else, and then all of a sudden, it it can it can really throw off the, the audience and distract them and, and confuse them. So I, I find it much easier to work these things into something that already works and, and tangentially. And I, I also have always loved Rube Goldberg machines mm-hmm. where, where there's, it's just about the art of it and the beauty of it. I, I think that, having these ideas and writing pages and pages of jokes about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, even before the movie, I had, n- I had nowhere to, no confidence to just bring it up out of, out of nowhere because yeah. it's jarring to an audience. <laughs> so when I, and, and this is probably subconscious working, I didn't go into it thinking what other types of communism are exactly, there. Yeah. It, just, it, just, it just came to me. That that this was a that this was a benevolent form of communism, and the first thing that came to my mind was was Narnia. And guess what? I've been thinking about a <laughs> thinking about a joke about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe for forever. And also, there's probably not any way that people will know what I'm talking about unless that movie had come out. So yeah. I could I could have written that joke in the early 90s when I first started comedy and nobody would have remembered yeah. it if they ever saw the cartoon version or read the book. I mean it just wasn't in the it just wasn't in the in top the, of the con- yeah yeah so that was it's it's all about timing with a lot of these. There's storytelling as a form and there's storytelling stand up which we've talked about in a certain way a couple times on the show. First, John Mulaney talking about microbriglia, and then Mike Rubriglia talking about microbriglia, which is every single detail that you might tell a story is an opportunity to do jokes on top. Yes. Is that, is that essentially how you pr- you're like, okay, well, I have this seven-minute story I'm doing on John Oliver, but I'm not done with it. Okay, let me go through. Well, I have this communism. Let's see if I can do just more on this. This is one detail. Let's explore that. Well, the, the way I write is to transcribe what I said on on stage last night at this yeah. point it took me a long time I always transcribe my jokes but over the years I've become better at adding things to the jokes while I'm on stage and and 
in the moment. So when I'm transcribing the story, I think I love Trader Joe's. Okay, why? Yeah, and then I can I can expand on on that. And as I'm saying, here's why I love it. Everybody does each other's jobs. They're very nice to each other. It's a great communal atmosphere. It's it's and I, and I can just hear critics say, yeah, it's communist. Yeah. And then I say, yes, it's communist, but it's benevolent communism. So so I write out out that and and just go on stage every every night and hope this new thing that I added from the last time mm-hmm. will 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 stick. Or at least feel right and 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 get some re- response. And the, the, the whole thing in being a comedian is building time is is hard. <laughs> and, I, and I find this this is the most efficient way for me. I want to ask you about two changes from the Pete Holmes show to the thing, which is um, in on Pete Holmes you go uh, blah blah blah. I called in fifth grade and Jew, and yes. then you point to yourself. But uh, then in the special you go, I called in fifth grade. And I'm a Jew. Okay. And making it longer. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't intentional. I got it. So I guess there's sort of a general, is there amount of word perfect you are to a thing like this? Like, are you recall, how much of it are you verbatim trying to remember something that you've written down? Probably 80%. Yeah. But I, I, there's Jerry Seinfeld who writes it down, performs it word for word and does an imitation of himself every night. (laughs) And then years ago, I read this interview with Gary Shandling, which he says he, he, Medals with the timing and the words and the order and the speed and and everything. He's more of a an actor, I think, than than Jerry was when he was doing stand up. And and so I've combined those those yeah. two. So I would say it's eighty percent Seinfeld and twenty percent riffing. And and by the time I put it on a TV show, and definitely by the time I put it on an album or a special, I'm 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 locked in. Yeah. A lot of the riffing is just recalling things that I had written down yeah because i've i've written it to death before i before i bring it on on stage usually so then the end of this section as you said is the kid talking hold on, hold your tears if this is going if this if this is going where i think it's going we'll be back on sunday yeah. and then show enough right is that yeah. incongruency that it sets up yeah. I, what i think is interesting about this first tangent is it it sets up what I guess you would call like the what UCB people call the game of the what is the oh, the metatextual comedic game of it. Right. So it's like there's jokes in between, but sort of the there's two sort of uh, comedies. One is there's going to be incongruencies of the situation and how you're reacting to it. Right. And the other one is there's going to be these tangents. Yeah. And I told you there's a story, and immediately I'm not talking about that story. Right. Yeah. Is that something that? at some point you're hoping for? Do you realize that is what the rhythm of it is? I love when you digress. Yeah. I love, I love d- digressions. As long as you come back to the, to the thing, I, I, I love that. And I loved, at the time I was reading a lot of, a lot of David Foster Wallace and his footnotes were mm-hmm. often as interesting as the, as the text. So yeah, I, I sort of got into, got into that at the time. So the all versions of the sort of joke involvement to the complement of your purchase. And then the first question is, how did you <laughs> land on the purchase of olive oil popcorn as what they would compliment you? Would you try out different things? No, that was the first that was the first Is it one. true? Is that like a thing that you It it never happened, but the olive oil popcorn seemed seemed to be the 
like a, they really pushed it and it was a, it, it, had, it had a huge presentation in the, in the different stores, yeah. Trader Joe's stores that I had gone to and people are very moved by it and it, it seemed pretty specific but still general. It's yeah. popcorn. Somebody could be excited over a popcorn. Um, yeah. So that sets up uh, one of the first just wonderful <laughs> jokes of it which is tried it, I can hardly keep it in stock. <laughs> uh, and the big difference between that, the Pete Holmes version and the recorded version is you add, let me tell you why that's funny. Oh, geez. Which is a specific move. I mean, I think what, is, what I like about all of that is you're like, oh, this guy in the story is also the guy we're seeing on stage. Right. It's the same. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. But so the let me tell you why it's funny is a very specific t- a breaking yeah. a wall type thing that I, yeah. I don't think you've done to that before that what why do you think you add to that in why do you like it because i had worked on it and it was so it was so hit or miss in the in the comedy clubs and i'm so sensitive so that if you don't laugh at this thing that i love yeah and i worked on i'm hurt <laughs> and and so one night i explained to them why they why they should have laughed yeah and the interesting thing is that deconstructing it actually makes it less funny yeah but for some reason that that sort of bravado is funny yeah so it's 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 very unusual (laughs) the the issue i have with that is it seems like a lot of comedians are doing that now yeah well there's a lot of this is a bad joke i'll explain why yeah and i i i think it's it was funny until it stopped being unusual yeah in Pete Holmes, you say you explain why is I don't have an inventory control issues. I'm not a buyer, but yeah. in the you <laughs> in the album, I believe you say I'm not a purchasing agent. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a purchasing agent for a grocery store. Yeah, um, Bu- buyer is is too inside baseball. Yeah, a purchasing agent is is more people would understand that better than and buyer. it's a harder yeah. sound. Yeah, agent. yeah, yeah, um, and, and purchasing. Yeah, yeah, which then goes into a new part, which is the uh pbs part and what that you set it up by the most jokey joke of the joke uh-huh. uh, which is a lot of grocery stores that he's just he's talking about you bring your own bag and they know what to do with it a lot of grocery stores they're dumbfounded by that i've had them put my reusable bag into a plastic bag yeah. which is a real how dumbfounded are they and then you it's a real setup it, punchline joke but it really happened yeah oh really? yeah yeah yeah, that's why you get. That's why you feel comfortable having such a yes. And then, so how does the PBS part of it then evolve? Where you're like, let me see all this PBS material that I've had lying around. Oh, sure. That I I just think about when I was in the audience. It was it was such a magical moment when the comedian would say something that you you thought only you had. Yeah. I mean, going back to the the most basic one. Which is the the frequency of those of those late night commercials where the woman said I've fallen and I can't get up. I remember, yeah. I didn't realize that every comedian had that joke in the eighties. But when I first heard a comedian say that, I was like, oh my gosh! <laughs> I thought I was the only person who saw that yeah. that commercial. So, luckily, I've gotten in front of audiences who are irritated by the list of of names at the beginning <laughs> of the of the the PBS and telling you these billionaires who have contributed <laughs> yeah so speaking of which the, the next part i think is maybe my favorite part because it's so different in a lot of ways so it's the um 
you the story of how they handle the receipts. Oh uh, yeah, that's and, my favorite part too. And it's a yeah. real and it's different than almost any other joke at, that I think of you did at the time, which is a really long buildup. Like you're just talking about, it and you get really quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Can you walk through the how that evolved? Because it really is sort of different, and it is new between after the. Like that was obviously a newer part. How did that come come about to do in that style? Well, I've never been really comfortable talking about my my mental illness on on stage, and then there was this this opportunity where I could where I was already doing pretty well with this joke, and then I could I felt comfortable with the the audience that I could that I could make myself vulnerable by by talking about this this rather personal thing and it happened to coincide a, a, a lot of the things that with with jokes are are timing and when when something's in your in your head you're working on a joke and then all of a sudden or or maybe it's that that thing where you start noticing things when you're when you're involved with them Bader Meinhof or something like yeah. that but yeah so i just read in a new york times op-ed by my psychiatrist <laughs> I didn't find him through the op-eds, but yeah. it turns out he's an op-ed guy. He's a, he's a professor at Cornell, and he also mm. sees patients. But he had talked about the the tiny interactions during the day. There was a study; it raised your levels of dopamine and serotonin. And then I just all these things. They tried out. I tried them out one night, and they worked, and they and they stuck. And people laughed when I mentioned the the different. Uh, antidepressants that were out there, and and so acknowledged that I was on them, and and it was very it was very freeing. Instead of yeah. making me embarrassed, it was very freeing. And I and I I think one of the reasons why I like that part of the joke so much is is that pretty much my entire hour and a half show right now is is based on revealing a lot about my 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 illness and depression and anxiety and my hospitalization. So which is part. Of, this whole new thing—it's called the Great Depression—and we're shooting it for for HBO in in June here in New York. But the point is that Trader Joe's employees hold the receipt at the top when you write yeah. it down, and so I'm so I'm going to Trader Joe's basically now at this point to do research mm -hmm. on little things and finding yeah, these yeah. things, and that one stands out because I'm writing a joke on it and. It wouldn't work if only Trader Joe's does it. I'm sure a lot of other people have yeah, yeah. had that happen to them. But it is so, it is it is such a, a a connection, and it feels so good. And again, that's one of the great things of being in an audience is when the when the comedian it seems like he's reading your mind. And then the part that makes me like laugh loudly is that whatever whatever you use to drive over the bridge without getting out of the car. Yeah, that phrasing of it. <laughs> do you is. Is that a thing you have to write down ahead of time? Do you riff something like that? No, I wrote that down. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to think of a fun way to say don't commit suicide. Su suicide. Yeah, so that that it's it's just finding a euphemism for for suicide, and, and you're just playing around until you find something. Yeah, yeah. So then you have the Pete Holmes in the Pete Holmes one. You end this version. You have the all the Oreos stuff. Which I feel like, as a person who has famously has all these cookie yes, jokes, felt right, like somebody right. had ready. There's some word changes um, there. Uh, the, in, in Pete Holmes, you say the secret is they're not Oreos, but in the special, you go 100 calorie Oreo cookies are such a scam. They're neither Oreos nor cookies, right? Which all is to build up to um, their chocolate covered 
chocolate-flavored oyster, oyster crackers. crackers. Yeah. Which has um, alliteration, assonance, and consonants in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is any of that on purpose? Do you no. think it just sounds good? And it just like, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've listened to so much. I love listening to smart people talk. And I'll listen to, like, I listen to a few good men over and over again falling asleep. And, and Aaron Sorkin in, in particular and, and Quentin Tarantino, I love, I love listening to people talk like nobody else talks. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, it's something that, that probably took writing down initially for the first 10 years of my yeah. comedy. And then now I can do on the, on the fly for the, for the most part with it, with a, with just a, luckily I've, my delivery has a lot of pauses and goes slowly, so I have a little bit of time to to formulate yeah. on on stage. When you have a thing, you make sure like you you hit it hard. Yeah, chocolate flavored oyster crackers yeah. is a hard hitted hit. Sure, joke. Sure, but but again, it's it's there's a there's a, a survival of the fittest thing where if chocolate flavored oyster crackers didn't get a big laugh, it wouldn't yeah it wouldn't have made it. That's yeah. the first time I doesn't matter I how good the phrasing yeah, is that yeah, people yeah. don't hear. Right. Yeah. I mean it also just sort of it's you can say anything, right? You can say they're crackers and people yes. are like oh, yeah. funny. they'd laugh yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that would have been funny too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. So uh there's the blood now we're at blood pumpkin seeds. So yes. here's there's three different versions of you do blood pumpkin seeds. <laughs> uh on John Oliver say I got some salt free, cage free, conflict free pumpkin seeds. I don't know how you feel about the whole controversy, but after seeing blood pumpkin seeds <laughs> I like to get the conflict free. In Pete Holmes, you just say, uh, instead of the conventional unfair trade, pause, you then pause, blood pumpkin seeds. You then don't reference movie, but then back in the special, you not only reference movie, you underline the joke, which uh, the unfair trade blood pumpkin seeds depicted in the ever so traumatizing documentary, Blood Pumpkin Seeds. Yes. Uh, Which is a classy way of pointing out you said something funny. But... The issue with that is, and I would never do it now, and I kind of cringe, is a lot of, I don't want to call them conservative, but hard-ass comedians mock the different, uh, the organic, and yeah. they mock, and I, I'm actually celebrating it, yeah. and, and so I don't, I wouldn't do that now because it sounds too much like, like, People complaining like, yeah. oh, everything's yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah, yeah. gender non-binary. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shut up, non-GMO. It's like yeah. all these things are positive to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, these are better pumpkin seeds. Yes. That's what the joke is saying. Yes. This is a store that has better pumpkin seeds than other stores. And then in both the John Oliver and Pete version, they ring the bell, which people love the ring the bell joke. And then yes. you're like, we're... Um, here comes the chief. Uh, here's the stock boy. He's also chief financial officer and the head of human resources. But you drop head of human resources for oh. the special. Oh, I shouldn't have. Yeah, yeah. It's probably better to add the head of human resources. But but the chief financial officer is definitely a, a choice. CEO would have been too easy. Yeah, and it's a specific chief executive officer doesn't sound so good. But but somehow chief financial officer sounds sounds like the, the, one of the things that my friend and I were at a Starbucks in Los Angeles. I'll never forget this conversation with this this friend of mine. He he was saying he that he thought one of the one of the components of of laughter was hearing a word that you forgot you knew. Mm-hmm. That that makes you you laugh. And chief financial officer for some reason 
I think would ring a bell if people who took a marketing class or a, or a finance class in in college or or high school. I think it's also hearing words in different contexts that like you yeah. right so you said trail mix and then just right. using trail in a different context people are like it's it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean you have different versions of that throughout all of it like where you're using words in different ways or using the same word over and over again in different ways. So this joke ends with how it ended to Pete Holmes and obviously continue which is he came with a bottle of spice cider. You said it's a fine compliment, and it was, which is one of the biggest laughs. Right. Uh, something about that where they're like, this place, if you get that, I imagine you're like, oh, the audience is on board. They yes. also, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, it was the Pinot Noir to the My Pumpkin Seeds Chilean Sea Bass. So that is not a famous wine co- <laughs> to food combination, at least to my. How okay. do you land on those words? Pinot Grigio is, is too common. Yeah. Right, Cabernet, all these other ones. Oh well, yeah, Cabernet too, instead. Yeah, 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 were too common, and for some reason, I thought Pinot Noir was a white wine, and you would drink <laughs> white wine. Noir. Yeah, it's so stupid, and and that you would drink white wine with a a fish, but Pinot Noir is a is a is a soft yeah sound, right? Pinot Noir pumpkin seeds is a hard mm-hmm. pumpkin. And Chilean sea bass is another hard one, so it 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 felt nice coming out of my mouth, and it sounded nice in my my ears. So that that's how it yeah. how it became. It's the right amount of syllables. Yeah, it's also that. a thing where yeah. you want a longer syllable thing than a shorter yeah, one. Right. It's like the yeah. rare example of like, let me figure out how to make this long without feeling yeah. forced. So we are now at the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now the story starts. So I think this is a good time to talk about how to just generally how do you work on a piece like this that ends up being 20-whatever minutes long when most of it is you're doing 15-minute sets. Like, right, yes. How do you then get to the point where, like, oh, my goal is for this to be long. I have to yeah. imagine at some point you're like, oh, let's see. Yeah. How do you then get to that part where you're then, do you start plotting it out when you realize, oh, I'm going to have to make this one consistent thing? I'm a, a runner and I have dogs, so I spend a lot of time exercising with my with my thoughts so yeah. I'm, I'm going over these stories and and thinking where i can and also listening to them a lot when i'm writing so i'm thinking where i can add this and bring this in and i, I don't go so far as to to frequently chart them but occasionally i'll i'll write out a, a list and 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 put them in orders but I will say, and Mike Birbiglia was the one who who told me this years ago. He said, "You you build time by doing hours, not by doing fifteen minute yeah. sets." So I would do the hours on the road and add all these things in there, and then I would come back to the comedy cellar and have to fit this into fifteen minutes. But the thing that the comedy cellar is great it's not not ideal for me at this point in my career. Where some guys I envy, like a, a Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld will go up with his notepad at yeah. the Comedy Cellar, and it's like, I'm not at that level where the, <laughs> where the people who book the Comedy Cellar and own the Comedy Cellar are going are gonna to indulge me in bringing my notebook yeah. on, and the audience doesn't know who the hell I am yeah, yeah. half the time. And so I have, to, I have to go up there with a killer 15 minutes, but I can lose them in between some big laughs yeah. for a minute. 
Yeah. At the most, usually. <laughs> and within those minutes is where I would add these, these little, things. little things. Yeah. So you're building it both one minute at a time and, yes, and, and, and 21 20. minutes at a time. Yeah. So then the next part, you, you do it in John Oliver, but you, you have to set up what the thing is. Do you have to just sort of keep on going? Because you can't really get that many laughs. You're just basically at that part. Is it a matter of just like, how can I explain as quickly as possible what the central problem is? Like, are you just going over in different, trying to do it in different ways and be like, oh, I got it down to like three seconds. I got it down to five seconds. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. And, th- and that's probably part of the, the, the motivation for the beginning of it. Yeah. Is to say, I have this story, not, yeah. not to build up too many, too many things. And it, and it's, and it, it's not like everything else where it's really well thought out. It's just, I have this story. And, yeah. And so you so, just, and I think, I imagine you're like, I need a very big, joke to come to justify that and that is the yeah. the Jewish joke. The yes. Eskimos have a hundred different words for snow, Jews ha- we have a hundred different words for loser. Yeah. But the thing is that is, is that, like a that, I had that joke for years. I had to imagine so. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But again, was, because I had become a person who had long jokes, short jokes just didn't fit yeah. into my to my set unless I could I could apply them to these these longer jokes yeah and so having that for for years may have worked in in conversation on a radio interview Mm -hmm. or something like that but as far as being a part of my act it would it would stick out how important is being jewish and and communicating to the audience that you're jewish to the person you're trying to portray in this story or for you and generally as your whatever we say persona is like when you think of yourself is that a part of it yeah yeah for some reason and and it was it was very it was very uh, liberating to me when I first started doing doing comedy in in Boston. Had I started in New York, being Jewish, I probably yeah. would have kept that to myself. But in Boston, I was one of only a, a few stand-ups at the time who were who were talking about being Jewish. This other man named Rich Seisler, who was was very inspirational and influence an influence of of mine. And so I could I could kind of stand out in Boston comedy with with Jewish jokes on a show where most of the guys were were not non non Jewish, which is an obnoxious expression. <laughs> so then you it goes into the part where you're imagining the home life of this woman you have not oh, met. Oh yes. yes. Um which is you portray this husband with uh salmon colored slacks, pop his collar and watch O'Reilly Factor. What do you want the audience to think of this man in this household at this point? Well, I often get resentful of, of very rich people. Depending on how I'm doing financially, I tend to get... To, and at that time, I was living with three Mormon men mm-hmm. in in New York City. I had three roommates, and I was like 40 or 39. And so things were tough. And I lived on the Upper East Side, and I just saw the wealthiest of the wealthy mm-hmm. walking around. And, and the... Even though that this Trader Joe's was in the seventy second and Broadway, the the people are are just so infuriating mm-hmm. because of their their wealth. And Trader Joe's is is affordable. I don't understand why they're, they're why so they're many, shopping. Yeah, there. why are they shopping there? <laughs> yeah, themselves. Why themselves? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it and it also goes to my my obsession with with picturing people's home lives based on their behavior and and it's completely false and judgmental and mean and yeah it's it's not a good quality but it it, it except for joke writing yeah is it was it hard to sort of get this part 
to work partly because it's darker than the rest of the, like this home life because he yells at his wife oh yeah 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 he's a real <laughs> bastard yeah and then yeah. you you're like wait you're like this guy who's like the joker who like caused chaos in this person yes was yes. it hard to get it to work because it is or people are on your side so they're like yeah screw those guys the, the comedy seller audiences are generally very uh, there's there's some you can get away with a lot of righteous anger downstairs. Yeah. But we haven't gotten to the appearance of the woman yet. But the appearance of the woman, I don't like to make fun of people who are unattractive. The woman in this was not as attractive as the woman I'm depicting in mm-hmm. the in the in the yes. in the story. I I don't want to I don't want to make fun of people's um bad You're, you're making fun yeah. of an attractive woman to and I think that's that's the, still we're not meeting this woman. We have another <laughs> one more tangent which is the which is a whole album track worth, which is about meeting the ladies, the girls. Oh, yes. Oh, the elderly women. Yeah, my favorite. One of my favorite parts of this. Is, how did is how the, did that evolve? Well, the hero of the story to me of the actual story was the woman who told the woman who cut in front of us, "You went shopping." Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, she wasn't as as angry and and didn't really care as much as I did. But but she did have that great line where she says to the woman, "You went shopping." And and I'll I'll never forget that. And and but the woman who came back to her cart was so dismissive of the elderly lady. And and as I think back about it, part of it was for me standing up for these for these elderly women. There's a part that I really think is really funny, but doesn't really work. But I want to know, but which is so is uh, you you compliment the lady, and one of the women was so overcome with lust, she was fanning herself with her hand, which yes. any third grade teacher will tell you yes. is futile. It is clearly. A joke. Yeah. To me, it's very funny. The audience yeah. didn't find it that funny. I can't right. imagine a lot of yeah. audiences find it funny. Yeah. What is that? Why is that? Why is that stay in there when, like, you remove a the if it takes yeah. up too much time? Yeah, it's it's a little bit indulgent in that. Yeah, it doesn't always get a laugh. But I've noticed over the years, especially when I was a kid, there were moments on on comedy albums where only later did I notice that the audience didn't laugh, and yeah. it's my favorite line. And so I think I'm going to to keep that in because I really, I love that image. And, and I really think that, that you may not like it, but if you do like that, you will really like it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, and I, and I, I, I feel that's part of building a, a, a fan base yeah. is collecting the people who you see in the audience. Nobody's laughing, but there is some people who are doubled over. And, and the, Judd Apatow, I've heard said that, that you need to get about 18% of an audience to, to really love something. And then you've got a, you've got a nice career. Yeah. There, first you introduce Phyllis, but then you do, um, a, re- a thing that's, uh, I think, a really classic you move, but I think it's really impressive, which is uh, you talk to the other ladies and they're, you go, well, Rose, Blanche, Dorothy. Oh, jeez, yeah. You know, you're trusting the audience, trusting some of the audience to know what you're doing without yeah. saying this is what you're doing, which yeah. you're setting up a thing later. But right. is that, why, why is it important to not have to spell things out to your audience? What do they, what do you like giving them those moments? I think I think audiences love jokes where they have to fill in part of it and, yeah. and that that's I think it's called negative space and the Simpsons use it so beautifully and and one of my favorite no my favorite joke of all time or the thing if I had to vote what's the best joke of all time is is this line other than that Mrs. Lincoln how was the play <laughs> which which makes me laugh at, or made me laugh when I first heard it and I analyze it and think about it so much it's such a beautiful a beautiful 
joke mm. that if I could only save one joke, it would be th that one. So that's, that's, I don't know if it's currying favor with the audience, but the people like that. I yeah. love that type of joke. And, and, and I'm, I'm an audience member at times and, and that really makes me happy. So, yeah. We'll be right back with more Gary Goldman. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you'd learn that that's the science-y term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple podcast. And we're back with Gary Goldman. So here we are. <laughs> now we're finally meeting the woman. One change from the, uh, from the John, John Oliver version to this is you, you say, I've profiled this criminal. Yes. So this is the first of a few examples of the you you increase the stakes with these little things that are not for jokes, but you're you're like, oh, this is a criminal. You'll <laughs> later go something like um, counterattack. You know, like it's you're using more yeah. violent language. Is that right. are you deliberate to that? Or are you like, or is that just something of like, oh, I need to make this seem like this story I'm telling is a very big deal. Yeah, it was deliberate. Yeah, yeah. to use that type of to use that type of of language to take it very seriously is is part of the the funniness how outraged and how out of proportion my yeah. reaction is yeah. to it yeah the next part of the joke has the probably the, if the most parody of a gary goldman part which is the audacity nay the temerity <laughs> yes. audacity is usually followed up in rhetoric by people trying to sound smart but mm -hmm. it comes off bombastic when they say nay temerity Audacity nay temerity is something that I bet you could find in a hundred publications. Yeah. And and I th I thought it was funny to use it in something where the stakes are so low. It's usually something from a UN speech, yeah. not a not a this stupid thing. Yeah, it's the audacity of hope, not yeah. the <laughs> the audacity yeah. of um yeah. trying to yeah. cut in line. So yeah, no, she says that, right? Yeah. And right. and then uh, you get your hopes up with the yeah, only to be dashed them upon the rocks of the no, which is again the the contrast. But I wanted to ask you, you know, you have these turns of phrases that are they aren't necessarily cliches, but they are existing phrases. Like, oh, yeah. what do you like about having the thing that is like it rings through your ear of a, a saying in that way? Yeah, I, I think looking back on it now, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have included dashed upon the rocks of of no because the thing that infuriates me about that expression is its is its frequency and how how often people use it. And I remember I wrote this this short film for an acting class in around two thousand two, and there was one character this this woman who 
every time she started a sentence, she would start with "Yeah, no," and the <laughs> actress unfortunately couldn't get the get it down, even yeah. though in real life it was based on her. She would talk like that, but she couldn't memorize it that way, and she would just say "You know," and and I'm like, no, you have to say "Yeah, no," and she couldn't get it down, so. It was an infuriating verbal mm. tick that a lot of people had at the at the time, and again, it's something that I couldn't do outside of a joke. As you ever notice, people who say "yeah," "no," so when I put it into this woman's, it worked with that with that yeah. perspective. But again, it was something I had had for for years, something yeah. that I'd written into this this awful short film in two thousand two thousand and two, and I finally got to to use it and and sort of deconstruct that that expression because it in, infuriates me it's just i hate i hate lazy writing and and i hate lazy talking and i think part of it is i grew up around people who spoke in clichés yeah it's so yeah. interesting cuz you have turns of phrases that f- feel different and used in different contexts and then you have a whole rant about cliches that you hate yes and, oh, yeah. and there's a clear distinction but it it distinguishes what you like to do you can say dash upon the rocks yeah because that's like it's it sounds like something but not something specific but you do not like and here's a list of every cliche that right I, yeah yeah i'm okay with dash upon the rocks because i don't hear that once a day yeah i hear somebody say at the end of the day 10 times a day between sports radio and msnbc and and everything else even on npr's programming people will start their sentences with at the end of the day and i i, I want to stop them and then for just saying you you have those two quotes uh of no one says it with something smart do you remember <laughs> picking those was one the sort of contrast of here's a boston accent of someone saying just saying smart it's mayor quimby from the simpsons <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and yeah the, i love doing the boston accent and and it was it's it's and where I come from, it's it's shorthand for for being really, really ignorant. The way yeah. some people use the Southern accent, but but yeah. that's that's become too cliche. Even the Boston accent is probably cliche. At but this you also point. like yeah. it's a cliche at this point for anyone who's not from Boston. I think it's right. Fair. Yeah. Um, the next part is where you go. You were ahead of me, and then you went shopping, which we explained yes. was yes. It's yes. not yours, but you're like that's good, and I'm gonna keep it so right. great. And yeah. it gets a laugh, but I imagine if it doesn't laugh, if get a laugh, you're like, oh no, these people do not care, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. You're like, I have yeah. to get, I have yeah. to finish this story. Real but quick. the interesting thing is that you went shopping is is something that that is the the least reliable part of that joke. Oh, interesting. It's, it's hit or miss whether they laugh at and I know if they laugh at you went shopping, which to me is one of the best parts of the of the joke because it made me laugh when it happened. I was like this is incredible. It is this, this is gold. What it is 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 a story joke. It's a joke yeah. with the story, right? So it's yeah. like if the story's working then that joke is the funniest part because they're yeah. following you. Right. Where everything else is a joke that yes. you can you can only be paying attention for 10 seconds and get some of these jokes. Where right. that one yeah. you had to like Yeah care and be on your side yeah and you're like oh if they don't laugh you're like i guess uh they're not on their side so then um it goes on you said considering the golden girls only have one minute to live which is a nice callback what is your feeling this is 2015 callbacks this is a time where callbacks were i think at an all-time low yeah where people are using it but you had a few and this joke alone you have three right yeah yeah i don't i don't care for callbacks and and there, there was a time where i would point out how easy it was to get yeah. a laugh off a callback during the set and then I thought that was too common for, for guys to 
to do stuff or women to do stuff like that. So I would, would take that out now. I used to be blown away by callbacks until I realized how, how easy, easy they are. Yeah. Um, so then you, you finally have the conversation where she hits you two once. You're looking around if there's a balancer. She <laughs> renders your lentil chips useless. They're for dipping, oh, not for topping. Yes. How, did, how did the, as you were like, okay, well, this conversation was very small. How do I make it into a joke? How did you sort of, when you conceived it, how were you thinking of like, let me make this funnier than just sort of like a awkward, intense moment in a real life? Well, the story involves her slamming into my basket and, and I was, I was hurt a little bit, but it was, it was in the context, rather violent and, yeah. and, and really an incident. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was outraged. And one of the great things with, with comedy is, is it, it's sort of its re- redemptive value, which mm-hmm. is like, all right, this horrible, to me at the time, because I was shaking, this horrible thing happened to me. I can redeem this by making it into a joke, and yeah. then it was worth the, the quote-unquote suffering. So the next line is, oh no, I've seriously miscalculated the political climate of this Trader Joe. So uh, they're not right for revolution. <laughs> so this is the part where I want to talk about how political this joke is, yeah. because... It is an incredibly political joke. It's maybe at this time your most political joke. So you, yeah. you set up yourself this sort of PBS watching yes. Harry Jew <laughs> in this safe space, and then you like, and then you're talking about communism, and then that's what's yeah. good about. It. And then you ha- you're facing off this wealthy couple yes. who thinks that rules don't apply to them. Yes. By this point, Bernie Sanders is running for president. Yes, <laughs> you talk about you have that black president joke. Where were you at this time? Were you like? Were you thinking, oh, let me figure about how can I make this a political statement about sort of these inequalities that you're noticing? Absolutely not. I just, I just know that I was broke at the time <laughs> and walking around with all kinds of resentment in the richest uh, city in the richest country. Yeah. I mean, I was broke at a time when a lot of people were were broke. I just, I just. Oh. I had bought a house at the wrong time and ha- was underwater on it and had to have three roommates and it was and I was shopping at Trader Joe's because it was affordable and and healthy and it was just yeah so I I was walking around with a little, I've heard Seinfeld talk about being irritable as a comedian and I was yeah. very very irritable at the at yeah. the time and 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 the the issue is I can't be so poor that it's causing me mood difficulties. Sure. So it's usually when I when I make a comeback financially and start earning because I wasn't working the road that much, but enough where I could work these jokes out. And every every spot at the cellar mattered. Yeah. In that I needed to do my best on them, so I needed to be prepared. So they keep on booking you. So they keep on booking me because I also needed the the money. Yeah. So. Getting on on stage frequently was was both helpful for my career, but also helpful for my for my for my lifestyle. But now, as you as you look back on it, do you now see like, oh, I guess there is a certain sort of like, be it political or a understanding of culture that I guess is now politicized, but sort of like you're contrasting types of people. I think the thing that I shoot for in in comedy, and I've heard Billy Crystal talk about it in, in kind of a an old fashioned way, where the where, where his managers said you need to leave the audience with a tip, kid, yeah. you know, and and uh, a part of you, and and yeah. so I, I think what I wanted to get across in in all of my jokes at every point in my 
career where I've actually had the skills to, to write decent original jokes is that I'm not going to tell you very much about me, but you'll know what kind of person I am based yeah. on this, this joke. Like, like hopefully after listening to an hour of me, you won't think I'm a, I'm a bro or a, or a bully. I mean, this joke is an incredibly personal joke without being what we think of as personal right. comedy. Right. Yeah. But what is actually personal is saying, this, I mean, this joke is long and it has, but it has a lot of little details about you, but also tells you how your brain works. You see, you connect dots. Right. And that is the best art can do is you sort of like get to like ride along a person's brain as they go through a thing. Kurt Vonnegut talks about reading is meditating in, in other people's minds. And, oh, I and, thought I made up that quote. Uh, no, you didn't make it up. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, you didn't say what he said. Yes, yes, yes. It's just sort She's of a what, what you, well, what you said was, was very valid too. And, and, and well said, but that, yeah, that's who I think of when I, when I think of that, that idea. So yeah. uh, it goes into then you'll get over it, which is this amazing moment, at least that I have when you listen to this joke, which is like, he's telling this joke. Like there's, there's a <laughs> <laughs> right. I hadn't thought about that. Like to me, that is the, the entire thing is that right. It's like, this wow. is, you'll get over it. This is 17 minutes. In. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I, I think the, the more general question is why is this joke so long? I mean, part of it is what kind of jokes I, I love yeah. when I would watch comedians and listen to comedians as a kid. There, there was part of my brain was just saying, Oh, keep going, keep going. Don't stop. And get to the thing that I think that is only in in my life, which ultimately became a, a, a joke that I we had talked about talking about today, but it, I already went into it. But the abbreviations yeah. joke, which was as a kid hoping that someday a comedian would say most of the states start with the same first two <laughs> letters. So yeah, that that's why the, all these things have to be long because I am obsessive and think yeah. about these, these well, that's, things and that's so what frequently. It, what is interesting is that you have this desire to have these long things that are like the maximum how you can talk about it and then there's a part in the next part of the joke where you go I've had access I've been grinding since second grade <laughs> instead of since the second grade which is how people would say it. And right. I, I don't know if you intentionally removed the the, which I think totally. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's at the same time, you're like, I can't have that the there. Right. You're like, this joke is 21 minutes long. Yeah. What is that contrast that you like? To say the second grade is something that an adult would say, but saying second grade is something that you would say when you mm -hmm. were in fifth grade. So it's, it's funnier. It's, it's funny. It's also it's, the reverse. It's a reverse yeah. of the kid who yeah. sounds smart. Yeah. It's the adult who sounds like a, oh, that's so like, a, like a kid. And at some point, it gets too long. Yeah. So I used to add this part where I told a story from, from it actually happened in first grade. I said it happened in second grade where the, where the teacher wanted to keep me after school, and she had the class vote on whether I should stay after school. And I lost, and I tell the, the story. And someday I will write it well enough that it'll be good enough to and to But that was in this joke. But that was in that joke, so it, it was, and it was another three or four minutes, and it's just like, all right, now it's becoming gr gratuitous that you're just, you're just, and that's, these but that's you're sensing that, yeah, it feels yeah. gratuitous to you, and it feels, like it feels too long, and the sort of the moral of like, because the truth about Americans and even New Yorkers, we love doing favors for strangers, which is again a pretty political message, <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. But how did yeah. that? Well, how did you end up like? Oh, well, that's the moral. I, I will bend over backwards to show you that I am not the person my family said I am. That is yeah. not a. That is a story ending. That is a moth slam. Oh, okay. It's a story. Oh, that's interesting. To the other ending, which is like a big joke ending, right? That is, yeah. 
not that you're not ending really on a laugh right because it's yeah. just nice or smart yeah. or interesting yeah was it you promised a story you feel like it ended with a story or you just sort of thought of that and you're like how, how that specific version of the ending where it doesn't have like another and yeah that's why that woman right is right whatever well i don't i don't I'm t- kind of tired of the jokes where the where the comedian is the hero and he and yeah. the people woo and I was feeling terrible about my my situation with my with my with my family mm-hmm. and that they didn't they didn't appreciate me and so I wanted them to hear that me me say that that I uh that I'm not I'm not selfish and I'm 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 not a a egocentric person and I probably am and maybe this joke just says that I was thinking about that sentence when I'm when a stranger I will bend over backwards to show them I'm not the person my family said I am that is like a decent metaphor for what stand-up comedy is you are talking to strangers and you are in this joke spending 21 minutes like going out of your way to be like I'm not this other type of person yeah the state of the state abbreviations joke which we almost talked about, which gets talked about a lot, which it, it felt like the the height of your ability as a comedian, yeah. like as in terms of just ability. But this to me felt like the most you joke. Oh yeah, it's the it's probably my best joke, and it's it's not it's not as popular as some of the other ones. Yeah, how, how maybe you, maybe because of where I did it, or the timing, or the fact that Patton Oswalt didn't go on Facebook and rave about it. When did you realize the joke is saying like this is who I am? Before today. <laughs> I think as I was writing it, I was saying I can get I can get everything about me into this yeah. into this joke. But I, I I also think that I've tried to do that with with most of my jokes since I yeah since I first started. But it, it's like a it's a cheat because I don't up until recently I didn't want to tell you anything about me. Yeah, and I wanted to keep it to myself. But I want you to know these things. But yeah. I'm going to like the the last. Colbert show I did I talked about all these lazy things in my life but what I really was saying but I didn't have the confidence was I'm so sick I'm yeah. really depressed I'm very sad and I can't function it was interesting because I, I heard someone refer to that set as like oh when he went on Colbert and talked about depression and I was like right and then I, yes and I was like, no, without <laughs> mentioning <laughs> yeah. depression that's, I mean, yeah. it's clear for people who know and not yeah. clear for people who are just right. like which I think is it ends up being savvier because people will get it who get it. And then right. everyone else is like, oh, this is just a funny joke. Yeah. I get it too. I'm yeah. also lazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what my, my, my friend said that, that, um, you need to yeah. be explicit about being depressed in this special. Yeah. You can't just say that you were, because some people will interpret it as, oh, he's, yeah, he's lazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. also especially for people who are depressed, they will appreciate it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, I'm like, exactly. And that is what I had it. no idea how many of us there are. Yeah. As a person who writes jokes, it is interesting that like the jokes told you this is what they wanted from you. It's like, you're like, oh, you did not go into this joke being like, oh, this is where I'm going to talk about mental illness for the first time. No. Um, so often on this show, I often try to find ways to ask people the very simple question of, do they think of themselves as an artist or a crafts person? Yeah. Um, what is your sort of history with the internal debate of clearly being a person who cares, whose craft is the way that they sort of get to their whatever the place that art is? The idea of when I when I started to think of myself as an artist, that that was a, that was a switch, and I can I can remember the 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 
inspiration I got at, and, and, and I'm not sure where I saw this painting by Edwin Hopper. It could have been the Guggenheim. It could have been the, the MoMA. But I saw it, and there was a splotch of white paint on a, a light pole, mm. a, a globe street light. And I said, oh, he, he thought about that splotch of white paint a lot. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of other areas on this painting that he, that he made choices on. And it was while I was writing this, this joke, and I, I thought, I, I'm... I'm I'm making something and there's it's not the same it's more of a collage than it is a, a painting but I I need to be meticulous in in choosing the right the right things to overlap and and to to do with this with this joke because there's a there's a theme and and the the thing that that I w- I hope people will, will understand is that these these things you have to do intentionally for years will eventually become things yeah. that you do offhanded and, yeah. and on stage and without really, really thinking about it. So, so I don't consciously say I, I need to, I need to be staccato here. Yeah. There's no, there's no formula to yeah. it. And that's probably why a computer won't be able to write a joke anytime soon because there, it's, it's, it's a lot of instinct and, and just repetition and and getting on stage every every night. I don't I would say if you had a choice between getting on stage and writing I would say get on stage, but but there there's a there's a correlation. Well, I think it's when you get on stage yeah. it is writing. Yes, it is yes, exactly. Exactly. And that, and now and when that, you get on stage yeah, you're right. And that will work. be part of the part of the tip. When once you get to the point where you can write quote unquote write on stage, you're you're really in a great position. Yeah. But it doesn't come overnight. <laughs> In general, for a thing like this, how do you know a joke is done? And especially because, and maybe it wasn't. I mean, I had heard in interviews you weren't happy with the special. No, no, the the, the audience really wasn't that crazy about it that that night, and and I'll, I'll never understand what the what was it, what was it going on. And and I'll bet you they'll say they had a wonderful time and yeah. and they laughed throughout it. But I'd I'd. I had heard better reaction to it, and does that I, make you think the joke, the jokes were not ready because there was an audience that was not responding the way the other audiences did? They were just weren't bulletproof, I guess. Yeah, yeah, which is which is fine now, but it took years of of thinking about it and and therapy and introspection and 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 antidepressants to to get to a point where i where i think that if that would happen again i would i would say that would be fine i remember mitch hedberg's wife saying that he wasn't crazy about his special that made him so famous the yeah. comedy central presents and it's it it happens i i i i've heard that from other comedians that they say yeah that this thing that made me so so popular didn't really play that well in the room i w- i will say that the the state abbreviations joke it, it played okay in, the, in yeah. the room that day but not as well as things that nobody paid attention to yeah i had better sets elsewhere with with less less popular jokes so i i will say that that the joke is finished when you leave on a on a laugh and it's and it's strong hopefully it's not a Hopefully it's not a callback <laughs> because that seems too too easy. But I, I remember reading the 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 Dante Club and one of the characters in the Dante Club 
this poet named Lowell said that poetry, you write a hundred poems for every good one and you can never find an ending. And yeah. I, I feel the same way about jokes. I write a hundred jokes for every good one and it's so hard to find an ending. So uh, talking about the tips, beyond sort of why are you doing it, what is it, you know, you talked about, and you've talked about just sort of after this special, you had a hard time going back on stage. Yeah. Um, oh, my word. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you you moved out of New York, and yep. then yeah. it was, and, but you then have moved back to New York. You've now yes. have, I think you've talked about, you have 90 minutes that you're touring with about yes. the depression. Yeah. So beyond sort of why you're doing the tips now, what does it mean to your relationship to yourself as a stand-up that you can do the tips now? The tips came from a, a whim on December 31st. Last year, I became vegan for New Year's, and this year, I wanted to do something. And so I, I had had a lot of coffee, I remember, and I, I feel like a god when I'm drinking mm-hmm. coffee in the morning, and I, and I was really jazzed. And I said to my, my girlfriend, I said, what do you think if I tweeted out comedy tips? And she said, I think the people would love it. And I said, all right. And then I just I just tweeted out, starting tomorrow, I'm going to write oh, a tip. I didn't realize. I every, assumed you had already every stockpiled day. Up, like no, 50. I only had one. Listen to your <laughs> sets and write down what you said. And I tweeted it out there. And, but also, I, I think subconsciously, I, I hope part of it was this, this guilt that I have over and the gratefulness I have over this career that I've been able to build, fortunately, and feeling better, that I, I often work with comedians who I think are terrific on the road. Yeah. And I, I, one thing I try to do is get their videos to the booker for Conan, who, who is, is very generous with mm-hmm. watching people that I've recommended. But the other thing I was thinking was, I, I often say to them, I say, I wish I had the kind of power that it would take to give you a career yeah. because you're so talented and and so part of it was I don't really have the time because I'm writing so much when I'm on the road that's my best time for mm-hmm. for writing during the day and also I can tell you everything I know about comedy in about two hours so yeah. I would love to be able to do that and then and then this idea came to me thank thank goodness and and so I've been been doing that and yeah the other thing is it holds me accountable because I can't tell everybody to write and not be right, diligent yeah. about my own writing. And also it makes me hold myself to a higher standard because people are going to say, this is the guy who's telling everybody how to write jokes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have to, I have to be on point with my, with my stuff. So what does it mean as a standup who's been doing it 20, I guess 25, 26 years, what does it mean figuring it out for you? Finding your voice, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really was. And people will say, oh, Gary, you had a voice and you sounded like this for a long time. But And that may have been the the, the case, but I didn't I, I didn't feel that way. I felt I was just writing joke to joke. And now I, I feel like I, I have a, a, for lack of a better term, a formula. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's intention. It's like, yes. I'm doing this on purpose. Yes. Not, not it's, it's, I mean, like, it's the jokes aren't writing you. You're writing yeah. the jokes, right? right? It's like this joke in many ways led you to how to write this type of joke. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that sound means it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round oh, okay. because it's comedy. It's a laughing round. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Thank you. You are uh, in the minority. Um, do you have a joke joke, like a street joke, a favorite 
these two Jews are in front of a firing squad, and one of them says to the to the man in charge of the the firing squad, "Can I get a blindfold?" And then his friend says, "Murray, don't make trouble." <laughs> Do you have a joke that you wish you could steal in 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 a way in which oh. it's another dimension where n- no one will know because this joke is just it's your exact same life, but you have this joke. Oh, uh, Mitch Hedberg's Dufresne. Yeah, the Dufresnes. Yeah, people are missing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a joke that never worked? You kept on trying. You think it's so funny. It never worked to a point where you could not put it in a set, but you'll go to your grave being like, this is really, really funny. Yeah, I, th- I think the story of the, the teacher who had the class vote on whether I should stay after school, like someday I'll, I'll make, it, make it work. We met recently at the Comedy yeah. Cellar. We also met very briefly, like 13 years ago at University of Maryland when you were doing Torgasm. Oh, gosh. I don't remember any of it. What do you remember? I just remember having such a hard time with that with that tour because I was I was in a similar state of mind as I, as I was after this last special in that I had just come off last comic standing and I was touring and I couldn't come up with my next mm. round of of good jokes and in front of basketball arenas was not the place to try them out and so I was I felt very I also felt like I was a, a satellite. Yeah, I, I know Mark Maron talks about that being a satellite comic. I was a satellite comic of of the biggest comedian at the time, and and at the time, very few had ever risen yeah. to that to that level. So it was very, it it was hard. It was like I I don't want to say I was Scotty Pippen, but I was maybe Steve Kerr or somebody on those Chicago Bulls teams who was a really I was a good basketball player. Yeah. But I was playing with Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. And so nobody really cared. I mean, the only, I don't remember any of the jokes Dane did, but I remember you did the cookies joke. Oh, cool. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can listen to It's About Time wherever you stream albums. You can watch The Great Depression on HBO Max. You can see Gary's list of comedy tips on Vulture. Follow Gary on social media at Gary Goldman. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Hannah Rosen, and Camila Salazar. Gotham Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Lauren Lapkus. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to Stetson Hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.